Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. So today we're beginning a short sermon series titled Generous Hearts, looking at what it means to be a people who live generous lives. And we've spent the last three months or so looking at what it means to be a church. And one of the things that we've seen is that a church is generous, that followers of Jesus give in extraordinary ways. Over and over again in the book of Acts and in the epistles, we see that God's people give sacrificially of their money and their possessions. And so as we launch as a new church in 2024, one of the values that I hope that we will be characterized by, that we'll be known by, is as a people of great generosity. On Friday night, I had the joy, uh, joy in quotes, (laughs) of being dragged to the Boone Hall Fright Night by my youngest daughter, Lizzie, who was determined that she was going to go this year. Well, after the pleasure of standing in line for about an hour and 45 minutes, Yep, I was given the even greater pleasure of walking through the haunted house with her and a bunch of her six great friends. They all held hands. I held the first one's hand and I got to walk forwards. I got to go first, of course, so I could experience the scares first. Well, it all reminded me of a story that I had read a few years ago in the satirical blog, which I think is now defunct, but was very funny. It was called The Faux Country News, and it was a blog dedicated to publishing fake stories poking fun at each area of Charleston, West Ashley, downtown, Somerville, etc. Well, this one was about Daniel Island, and it read like this. A new haunted house attraction on Daniel Island will feature a flying-in-coach dungeon to scare local residents. The unique horror experience will put people into the terrifying scenario of being too poor for first-class travel. Before entering the flying coach dungeon, visitors will be required to wait in line and watch 50 more more important people go inside before they do. When finally granted entry, they'll be forced to wait behind a doofus who's trying to stuff an oversized suitcase into a tiny overhead space and refuses it won't, to accept it won't fit. Then they'll be forced to sit in a coach seat that fits only 75% of their butt size. And they won't have access to freshly steamed towels for their faces. The scares go into full gear when visitors are required to pay $5 for bad domestic canned beer and are fed carb-filled infant-sized snacks with no gluten-free options available. <laughs> Haunted house creator Gregory Perkins is proud of how much his attraction is scaring Daniel Island residents. A lot of them thought a lot of thought went into this haunting experience. The coach seats are placed near a bathroom with a broken sliding door. So so visitors are forced to enjoy a faint farty smell the entire time. (laughs) They'll also be placed next to passengers who have removed their shoes and have their bare stinky feet propped up on the chair in front of them. All of this torture while having a clear line of sight to the first class section where VIPs are enjoying unlimited champagne and lobster tail. Well, clearly, for folks who don't live on Daniel Island, there is a perception that DI residents are wealthy and entitled. But the same could be said of how people view many suburban neighborhoods across America. Places become known for their insularity and their concern primarily for themselves and themselves alone. 
I often wonder though, what if this island and the neighborhoods around it was known not for its wealth or sense of entitlement, but for its extraordinary generosity and its willingness to seek the common good? What would that take? Surely it's possible, and what if a church led the way? There's a problem though, right? One that I struggle with, and I think that if we're honest, most of us struggle with. And it's a huge barrier to becoming this kind of church or community. It's the belief that the money and possessions I have are mine. The belief that the money and possessions I have are mine. They're mine to do with as I please. After all, I earned them, and the world revolves around me. So I should get to spend it how I want. However, Scripture teaches us something very different. It teaches that everything we have is a gift from God, and we're simply stewards or caretakers of what he's given to us. What is it that we say each Sunday? All things come from you, O Lord. Right, you sounded very begrudging there. (laughs) But we heard it in our Old Testament reading today, didn't we? I hope you noticed that in the reading from Chronicles. But, you know, this false belief isn't a new problem. People have believed this lie since the beginning of time. And we see it in our gospel reading today. So let's take a closer look at that passage and see what we can learn. And what I believe we'll see is that it's only when our hearts have been transformed by God's grace that we'll become the kind of people who live lives characterized by consistent sacrificial generosity. So let's turn to our gospel reading from Luke. You can find it in your announcement sheet if you'd like to follow along. And what we have here is a parable. And most simply put, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. An earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's not a true story in the sense of it actually being an event in history, but rather it's a story that illustrates an important truth. And Jesus uses parables often. In fact, there are actually 35 in the Gospels. You see, he knows that stories speak to our hearts. And just think about how much easier it is to remember a movie than it is to remember a sermon, right? honestly. I mean, I remember movies better than I remember my own sermons, and I preach them, right? I'm sure the same is true for you. Well, the context of this parable is that Jesus is teaching a crowd of possibly thousands of people, and someone in the crowd gets up, and he asks him to arbitrate for him in a dispute he's having with his brother. He says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's reminiscent, right, of a scene in many households around here on any given week. Daddy, tell so-and-so to share those toys with me, right? Well, knowing Jewish custom and the law at the time, it's safe to assume that this is the younger of two brothers. And what's happened is that the brother's father has died without leaving any kind of will. And so according to the laws of that time, the estate couldn't be divided until the older brother agrees to it. In this case, though, clearly the older brother doesn't want to share what he's inherited. And as a result, the younger brother feels aggrieved. And so this younger brother comes to Jesus, a respected rabbi. After all, it wasn't that unusual for a rabbi to be asked to do this, to arbitrate in a legal situation. They were experts in the law. But interestingly, Jesus refuses. Now, why is that? Well, you see, he has a different agenda than other rabbis. He's actually not too concerned about the money. Now, he wants to see the brother's broken relationship restored, and ultimately, he wants to see their hearts turned towards his father. So Jesus says, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And then he gets straight to the root of the brother's problem, the thing that's driving a wedge between them, anxiety and jealousy. 
In verse 15, we read this. Then he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, because Luke writes that Jesus says this to them, it makes me want to believe and assume that the older brother is actually standing right there with his younger brother. And he lays out the lesson he's trying to teach them, that real security and true peace are only found in Jesus. Not in our possessions or in the possessions of others that we wish we had. No, it's in him alone. Now, how many of us, if we're honest, spend an inordinate amount of time worrying about our financial security, forgetting where true security comes from. It may not look like the situation in our gospel story, but perhaps you're always checking your stocks. Maybe you're one of those people who's always online just seeing how they're doing today. Or maybe you're always checking your bank account just to see how much money has gone in or where you're at right now. Or perhaps you're checking your savings to see if you have just as much as you hoped you had. Or perhaps it's that quarterly pension update that comes and tells you, you're going to reach the goal, don't worry. Or maybe you're always wishing for a substantial pay raise or a bonus at the end of the year so you can build that pool you've been longing for, right? Think of uh, Christmas vacation. Yeah, we're not as dissimilar to the younger brother as we might like to believe if we take a look at our own lives. And so to help us and these men, Jesus shares a story to illustrate his point. Verses 16 through 19. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now, whenever I hear this story, I'm always reminded of the character Ebenezer Scrooge from Charles Dickens' book, A Christmas Carol. Perhaps you've read the book, or even better, you've seen the amazing Muppets adaptation, (laughs) possibly my favorite Christmas movie. But everyone here probably knows what someone means when a person's called a Scrooge, right? It's somebody who's probably rich and wealthy, but very stingy and greedy with their money. They're unwilling to be generous. They hoard it all for themselves. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol to challenge wealthy English people to not forget the plight of the poor. Well, like Scrooge, the rich man in our story does well in business, and he wants to keep what he has for himself in his later years. Everything he's earned is his. It's down to no one else's efforts, not even the workers he's hired. No, he's earned this money, and he plans to spend it and enjoy it for himself. And you might be thinking, well, you know what? That's fair enough. You know, he's the boss. He took the risk. He should get to enjoy the fruits of his labor. The problem is that he's missing the point. It's not that money or material things are wrong in themselves. It's that they've become the ultimate thing in his life. Makes me think of New York pastor Tim Keller's definition of sin. Keller says that sin is taking good things and turning them into ultimate things. Taking good things and turning them into ultimate things. 
And this is what the rich man's done in our story. Being wealthy has become the goal of his life, not a means to glorify God or love his neighbor with his generosity and his good management of what God's given him. In fact, he seeks to glorify himself. Notice how he speaks of my crops. I love how Kendall emphasized that during his reading. He speaks of my barns, my grain, my goods, even my soul. Whose wealth does he believe it is? Yeah, in his eyes, he believes it's his wealth, and he is going to enjoy it for many years to come. But he hasn't reckoned with God. And in verses 20 and 21, we read this. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Yes, God knows something that this man doesn't know. He knows that the man's life will end that night. And the earthly wealth that he has accumulated and amassed is going to be useless to him. And God doesn't mince his words, does he? The man is a fool. And that's not a polite term, friends. But it's the right one because he has been foolish. He has sought security in his possessions and neglected to store up for himself treasure in heaven. When he could have been using his wealth for good, he's chosen to store it up for himself. And this is a trap that so many people fall into. The commentator David Wenham writes this, the parable of the rich fool illustrates the deceitfulness of riches. Their deceitfulness lies in their tendency to give people an illusory sense of security, to fill people's thoughts and horizons, and to stifle any interest in the kingdom of God. Too many people become obsessed with what's ultimately an illusion. And that is the idea of security apart from God. Believing that you can be secure apart from God. There is no such thing. Now, please hear me correctly. I'm not saying it's wrong to manage your money and your possessions well. But as with all things in this life, it's meant to be done to the glory of God. And to become consumed to the point of losing interest in the things of God is a dangerous place to be. The love of money is, after all, as Paul puts it in today's epistle reading, the root of all kinds of evil. So what are we to do with all of this? <clears throat> you know, I think it's a pretty scary story for many of us in the Western world. It certainly makes me stop and think if ever a culture was obsessed with possessions and the accumulation of wealth, it is ours. In his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, Moving from Affluence to Generosity, Ron Sider wrote this. We have been brainwashed to believe that bigger houses, more prosperous businesses, and more sophisticated gadgets are the way to joy and fulfillment. As a result, we are caught in, a, in an absurd materialistic spiral. The more we make, the more we think we need in order to live decently and respectably. Somehow we have to break this cycle because it makes us sin and it also destroys us. You know, I know this is something that I struggle with, and so I'm guessing there are some of you out there who struggle with this too, especially living in a place like this. It's hard not to cover the things other people have, 
right? In fact, I think some of these areas are designed exactly for that purpose. You know, we, we tend to cover their shiny new SUV, right? Or their brand new golf cart or the pool they just put in their backyard with that Christmas bonus or the vacation they just took to Disney, perhaps their boats or their golf club membership, their new home, their fashionable clothes, you name it. There's all kinds of things we can cover, right? But none of these things can save us. None of them. None of them can ultimately bring us fulfillment in this life. Our only hope is Jesus. Only in him can we find true peace. How can we break free from this cycle, though, this thing that's killing our souls, the materialism of our culture? Well, to quote Tim Keller again, to the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. Therefore, think on his costly grace until it changes you into a generous people. The solution to stinginess is a reorientation to the generosity of Christ in the gospel, how he poured out his wealth for you. Now you don't have to worry about money. The cross proves God's care for you and gives you security. See, in the cross of Christ, we see radical generosity at work. The father gives his only son to die for those who have turned their back on him. That's you and me, not those people out there. That's you and me, brothers and sisters. And because of his generous heart, we can be set free from sin and death and from living anxiety-filled, ungenerous, and entitled lives. All those who choose to follow Jesus and experience the depths of his grace cannot help but respond by living with generous hearts, living out the new gospel-shaped identity that we've been given, giving away what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose. So what about you? Do you grasp how much God loves you, the depths of his love for you, the lengths that he has gone to rescue you? And as a result, do you have a generous heart? Are you managing well what God's given you? Are you tempted just to hoard it and keep it for yourself? It's funny, isn't it, how it's only in giving away what would seem to save us from anxiety and fear that we then find peace and freedom. It's only in sharing what we've been given that we find true joy. And it's because true generosity requires us to put ourselves in a place of trusting God. And then as we experience his incredible faithfulness, we realize there's nothing he can't provide. You know, I could share with you countless times I've experienced putting myself in God's hands financially, and I've seen him work a miracle. I've seen him come through over and over again, even when it seemed like we wouldn't have enough money to put food on our table. And yet still, I struggle to trust God and I have a generous heart. I struggle to tithe on what I earn or rather on what he gives to me. And so I get it. But I do it. I trust him and I tithe the first fruits of what he's given me to steward. And this is what he teaches us to do in scripture. And I want to be faithful to him, to be regular, to be joyful, and to be generous in my giving, even if it comes at great personal cost. And I wonder, will you join me in doing the same? When you make your annual giving plan this year, and I hope you will, will you choose joy with me? Will you choose freedom with me? Freedom from anxiety? Will you live with a generous heart? You know, friends, it's time for us to grow up and grow out. We've talked about that as we launch, growing up and growing out. And one place where we have a lot of growing up to do is in our giving. 
I'm not sure that we really trust God with our wealth. And for the last 17 years, we've been able to fall back on our mother church to provide for us when there's a need. But like the college kid who's finally graduating and leaving home, parents say, hallelujah. We are cutting the apron strings, and now the safety net is God alone. So will you trust God? For some of us, this is going to look like making a pledge for the first time, actually committing to God that you will give regularly each month through his church body. For some of us, it's going to be actually giving a tithe to God, seeking to give the first 10% of your income to God rather than perhaps one, two, 5% you typically give or the occasional 20 bucks you might throw in the plate. And for some, it's going to be giving more. After all, I believe the tithe is only a starting point. For many of us, it's not costly to give 10% of our income away. In fact, it's relatively straightforward. What is God calling you to give? And will you obey? And no, you can't do it in your own strength, but in the power of his spirit, you can. I'll finish with this. The Anglican priest and founder of Methodism, John Wesley, once famously said, the last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. The last part of a man to be converted is his wallet. Today it would be his Apple Pay, right? And while that's an oversimplification, I believe there is some truth to this. And perhaps because it's perhaps it's because once we give God our money, it's something we can't get back, right? We've given it away. But remember, all things come from you, O Lord, and of your own have we given you. Might we be a people characterized by generosity? living with generous hearts because of God's incredible generosity towards us. And might it transform the communities around us for his kingdom's sake. Amen.